This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. In this podcast, we'll discuss recent changes in federal telehealth policy in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. With me to discuss the topic is Krista Drobak, the Executive Director of the Alliance for Connected Care. Krista, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. Krista's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, while federal officials continue to struggle in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, likely moreover in ensuring adequate testing, the Congress and CMS regulators have, to their credit, substantially expanded the Medicare telehealth benefit in an effort to improve healthcare access during the public health emergency. Medicare began reimbursing for telehealth services in 1997. However, services have remained substantially limited. Up until recently, Medicare only reimbursed for live video conferencing under very specific circumstances, including originating site, or the physical location of the patient, that of practitioners at a distant site, and types of healthcare services that could be delivered. Beyond improving healthcare access during the pandemic, liberalizing telehealth policy appears to have been enthusiastically welcomed by the provider community. So much so, there is considerable speculation these reforms will persist beyond the conclusion of the public health emergency. With me again to discuss sweeping telehealth policy reforms is again Krista Drobak. Listeners may recall I interviewed Krista a few years ago on this specific topic. So Krista, with that as intro, let me just for background ask, why had the Congress, or what's your understanding of why the Congress and CMS had up until recent strictly limited the Medicare telehealth, and I'll throw in, of course, we'll get to remote patient monitoring or these benefits? The long-term challenge has always been cost. The Congressional Budget Office really does not look favorably on telemedicine. They believe that it increases costs overall rather than replacing in-person visits. Their underlying thinking is that people use telemedicine and then also on top of that also go in person. So uh, our challenge up until now has always been um, the cost and the perceived worries about fraud. The, you know, we find it very interesting that people at the Office of Inspector General or CMS um, Program Integrity Office think that it's easier to commit fraud by telemedicine because really the fraud that takes place in Medicare is often making up fake patients and it's a lot harder to track that down than it is in telemedicine to see a trend quickly. Um, and also, you have an actual IP address to IP address in telemedicine. So it seems to us that be easier to detect and root out fraud in the online environment than it would be in the uh, in the in-person environment. So we think we've got um, good arguments on the fraud piece, and we're collecting data now on the cost piece. Okay, the, uh, I've heard it explained in part by the view it's duplicative and not substitutive. Uh, that's one variation of, of exactly. explanation. Yes, thank you. So let's go to exactly. uh, let's go to where we're at. So obviously, uh, the Congress now has passed four 
so-called COVID-19 related um, uh, bills or sometimes referred to as supplemental bills. Uh, the first and uh, the first supplemental and of course the third, the CARES Act had telehealth provisions in them. And then of course, in late March, early uh, April, CMS published an interim final rule and approximately the first 40 pages of that discussed uh, regulatory waivers uh, CMS would uh, grant uh, in relation to their health policy. Can you provide sort of more top of line what are the more substantive uh, congressional uh, legislative and regulatory changes to the policy? Yes. Congress started with authority in the first supplemental to allow for the waiver of the originating site and rural restrictions in Medicare. And the CMS followed through with that and lifted those restrictions. Uh, the subsequent bills actually gave the authority to CMS to lift the entirety of uh, 1834M, so any part of 1834M. So that they went ahead and also lifted the restrictions on speech, uh, speech therapists, um, physical therapists, occupational therapists. So now pretty much um, all of the uh, practitioners who bill Medicare can practice telemedicine and the patient can be anywhere and the provider can be anywhere. They clarified the use of technology. So you can use a smartphone. Um, and when advocates asked for audio only, CMS did add some E&M codes that are audio only. So there are some codes that you can use for um, phone-only uh, telemedicine. They also um, added a, a lot of new codes. Mm -hmm. So um, most of the primary care codes are now covered. Behavioral health is covered. Um, they sort of assessed what you might need to do during a, a COVID emergency and, and added those codes. So there's a lot more that can be reimbursed. Um, the Office of Civil Rights at HHS waived the um, HIPAA requirements in terms of what kind of platform you can use. So you don't have to have a HIPAA-compliant platform. You can use FaceTime or Skype. Um, CMS waived the co-pays on telemedicine um, so that, um, you know, for both remote monitoring and telehealth, which is really advantageous, especially for remote monitoring, because remote uh, co-pays have been a barrier for remote monitoring mm -hmm. take-up. Um, they and actually most Medicare Advantage plans have now waived the copays for both telemedicine and remote monitoring. Um, on the state side, there have been significant changes. About 49 states have waived some part of their state licensure rules. Um, Medicaid has started covering things that weren't covered previously. Um, state medical boards have allowed for the waiver of existing relationship requirements, face-to-face -face requirements. Um, there's been some scope of practice changes so that, um, for example, supervision of nurses can be done virtually. Um, some, some states that didn't specifically allow nurses and physical uh, therapists and you know, physicians assistants to practice telemedicine um, are now allowing it. So there have been changes at both the federal and the state level. So quite a lot, uh, to say the least. Exactly. Um, let me ask, uh, as as follow-up, there has been some, and this is a weedy question, realize, relative to telehealth as it relates to 
uh, Stark or uh, physician self-referral uh, law? What's what's the intersection there? You know, the times that it, it has come up, the, the Stark laws for me has been between the vendors and the providers. So we waived the telemedicine restrictions in Medicare, but most of the capacity in the marketplace for telemedicine is through vendors mm -hmm. because in the past, you know, medical offices haven't been reimbursed for telemedicine, so they didn't invest in telemedicine. So when you wanted to go and get a telemedicine visit, your employer or insurer have generally um, um, vended that out in order to make mm -hmm. that happen. So you've got a lot of doctors in their homes um, doing telemedicine visits all day long, but they're the, they're the employee of an American Well or an MD Live. They're not a physician office, so therefore they're not... In, and enrolled in Medicare. So that means that those vendors can't actually provide telemedicine services directly to patients because they're not Medicare enrolled providers. So the way that it's happening in the marketplace now is that a lot of the telemedicine is being done through hospitals and other Medicare enrolled providers, but they have vendors helping them under a white label. So one of the questions that we've had about Starkey and Kickback is can a vendor um, provide a referral to a hospital. So if they, if they get a patient that says, you know, that obviously needs to be seen, can they refer that patient to the hospital who is their client, mm -hmm. right? And the answer is yes, they can, um, because it's not a self-referral. Um, but those are the types of scenarios where this is coming up um, just because of the strange way uh, that telemedicine has grown up um, over time, and, and mainly as a response to the regulatory challenges in Medicare. So in some sense, to follow up, it's, it, it turns out to be convenient that the, the vendor is not under the Medicare program, thereby being able, and that's an accident of history, meaning the Medicare provider wasn't doing the service themselves, they farmed it out, and as a result of that, this referral is now allowed. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Sort of correct. an accident of history, I guess. Let me let me ask. Um, although this is uh, we're early into this, uh, the take up of these waivers has has just been several weeks now. What what data or what uh, what are you hearing relative to the provider community's use, expanded use of telehealth services as it relates to? Uh, utilization, improving um, uh, access for patients, and of course, uh, quality. It's been extraordinary. Um, so, just to give you the numbers of a few of our members, Intermountain Healthcare did about a hundred telemedicine visits per week prior to the COVID pandemic, and now they're doing ten thousand a week. Um, Stanford Health, another one of our members, is doing 3,500 visits a day now. Before the pandemic, telemedicine accounted for less than 1% of all the care they provided, and now it's 70% of all of the care that they provide. Um, and American Well is seeing um, is doing about 30,000 visits per day. So it has been an absolute explosion of telemedicine. Um, since the start of the COVID pandemic. And are you hearing, and I'm curious because I do hear this uh, 
relative to confusion on billing. And I don't want to get into coding issues, which is extremely weeding. Are you hearing any concerns or problems as it relates to claims or with these waivers, uh, providers being able to uh, bill? Uh, no. The CMS has made it very clear that a 95 modifier is all that's necessary to bill. So you can just bill as you would in your office and just put a 95 modifier on it, and it makes it clear that it's telemedicine. Okay, thank you. Let me go to, since you're so well studied on this subject, what relative to the pandemic might CMS do further? And let's let's discuss, or let's try to weave into as well, a remote patient monitoring, because I hear there's ample opportunity to earlier diagnose these patients through RPM. But what else might CMS or the Congress consider to go further down the road here? Um. Well, I think that some of the remaining things are, you know, there are still folks that really want audio-only telehealth uh, for, I mean, some providers are only doing telephone calls. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is still a debate over that. Um, we, you know, I, there aren't a, a lot of things that we're really asking for. Um, we... We, we have been working on what are appropriate program integrity guardrails. That's kind of our big policy challenge right now because the first supplemental put in unworkable program integrity guardrails. You had to have a three a, a relationship within the last three years with mm -hmm. the patient. And if you didn't have a relationship with the patient, it had to be someone within your tax right. ID number that did. So it basically envisioned, you know, a primary care office. And it didn't take into account the way that um, telehealth is really operating in the market today. And CMS just said, you know, we're not going to enforce this. And then Congress eventually stripped that language in the third bill. So instead of changing it, we actually, they stripped it. So we're now operating in a world where we basically don't have any program integrity guardrails. That really concerns us because our members are good actors and they want they want program integrity guardrails. They just have to be workable. So um, our, one of our big challenges right now is just figuring out how do, we, how do we enable this for the long term while at the same time, you know, protecting taxpayer dollars and making sure that we don't have dock in a box, you know, mm -hmm. coming up. And no one's really talking about that right now, but that's something that we're, we're thinking about. Um, on the remote monitoring side, we we already had so much ability to do remote monitoring in Medicare. It's just the take-up was so slow. And I'm hoping that this crisis will increase the take-up significantly. And really the only remaining barrier on remote monitoring was the co-pays. That, that was a real um, – that was something that was very difficult for patients um, to get over. So okay. I think we'll see an increase there. I have to ask, and I know a lot of your research – our alliance's research in the past has been spending efficiency as it relates to telehealth. So let's revisit that subject as a generic possibly here, and that is what's, what's your latest understanding of using telehealth as it relates to reducing spending growth or improving spending efficiency? Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, someone asked me earlier today, well, who's against you (laughs) on making these permanent? And nobody really. It's just that we have to be able to show a judicious use of taxpayer dollars, and we have to be able to show that this isn't going to increase fraud. Mm -hmm. So um, just to give you an example of what we were dealing with from the Congressional Budget Office, this year before COVID, we thought that the low-hanging fruit was telebehavioral health. Um, you can already treat a patient with substance abuse or, and co-occurring mental health conditions, but you can't treat someone who just has a mental health condition. So we wanted to get mental health covered, and the C- CBO scored it as $750 million for 10 years, which was crazy. Um, and so we hired, uh, you know, an external scorer, expert in scoring, and he replicated the CBO methodology and discovered that they had estimated a hundred percent take up. Well, I don't think that everybody in Medicare who has a mental illness is going to be, you know, seeking telebehavioral health. So um, he actually had claims data from, he has a deal with CMS on data and was able to actually look at who might actually take up telehealth, telebehavioral health. And he got the score down to 81 million. So, which is obviously much more palatable than, 750. So we have a lot of work to do on the Congressional Budget Office side. And one of the things that we're working on right now is how do we formulate a model that lets us use the data during the COVID emergency to to demonstrate telehealth and how it might actually be used in a non-COVID world. It's very challenging because we have to basically discount the number of visits that are done only related to COVID. Mm-hmm. And then we also have to um, find a way to accommodate the idea that there are not a lot of elective surgeries happening. And so, and some of these visits are, you know, either precursors to surgery or follow-ups to surgery. So it's a, it's a very different, difficult um, balance, which is unfortunate because this is the first time we have Medicare data um, to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's go to this uh, sort of last issue, the ultimate question here, that being these waivers persisting beyond the public health emergency. Just to say, in the conversations I've had, uh, not only is there a desire within the provider community, but certainly the business community, people who sell, um, say, RPM uh, devices, peripherals, and also those in uh, just the business of providing telehealth consultations obviously are bullish. But what's your sense of appetite beyond the emergency on the Congress's part? Other than let's leaving us, let's park uh, the CBO score. Let's assume that is addressed adequately. Uh, what's your sense of where we'll be relative to tele- telehealth benefit a year from now? Or let's say post-vaccine, play it safe. Well, it is absolutely up to telemedicine stakeholders to do this. It's up to us. We have to be able to show the value of telehealth. We have to be able to show um, patient satisfaction, which is already showing to Mm -hmm. be very high, quality, um, cost efficiency, I mean, we have to we have to tell the story using data from this time period in order to make it permanent. It's it's 
obviously we've gotten a major boost from the fact that a lot of people have now had their very first telemedicine visit and are, um, you know, have tried it and liked it. So now it's up to us to capture that and, um, and use the data to convince Congress that this should mm -hmm. happen. As always is the case, right? Exactly. Um, thank you for this overview, and uh, I wish you the best in, in how uh, the policy evolves. So you stay healthy with your family. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi. Thank you again, Krista. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.